This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This is the Scandal of Reading podcast. Join Jessica Hooten Wilson, author of The Scandal of Holiness, and her co-hosts, Claude Acho, author of Reading Black Books, and Austin Carty, author of The Pastor's Bookshelf, for inspiring conversations about why Christians should be reading great literature. In each episode, the host will also be dialoguing with writers about books they love and why these books matter for the life of the believer. So, you guys up for a season three? Season three, let's get it. I'm excited about <laughs> it's going it. Let's down. Do it. <laughs> well, I'm excited that we've had so many responses from different listeners. I've had people emailing me and really engaging, asking questions about books, asking for reading lists, which I find so much fun. And recently, as I was getting ready to talk to you guys again and talk about our third season, and we can tell people what's going on and how we're going to tie all these episodes together. Um, But one of the questions that came up as I was listening to podcasts recently was this relationship between the Bible and lit and who better to talk to than you guys about what is this relationship between the Bible and literature? So the podcast I was listening to, I I heard a NPR interview and I think I sent it to you guys praying with Jane Eyre by Vanessa Zoltan. And then I heard an interview with Dante Stewart uh, on the Bible for normal people. And both of them seem to be suggesting this kind of sacred property to literature. But what's interesting is you have to listen closely because it also sounds a lot like what the three of us argue about literature. So maybe we can help people kind of navigate this because, um, yeah, I, I want to know your feelings and your thoughts before I share mine, but maybe we can navigate these questions. What, what did you guys think about those I mean, it's 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 interesting because the Bible is literature, right? Um, so we appreciate that, and I think we, you know, I, I recognize speaking for myself, appreciate that, recognize that, and that's been an enriching dynamic to my my faith um, and my engagement with all literature as a whole. So that has been, I, I think it's important to recognize that, and it was really helped by uh, a Bible's literature class that I took as an undergrad as an English major. Mm-hmm. That was really helpful for me. Um, so. You know, I, I recognize that, but I also recognize and uh, feel like, you know, you know, protective or or just sort of like alert that we recognize that what scripture is, the scripture is, is something that is set apart, right? It is the it is the book of books, right? Um, but at the same time, I I, I can understand um, how folks can be drawn to engage with literature in the way that Christians engage with, with scripture, right? Um, because, you know, literature, its power and its beauty is really derivative uh, in many ways from, from the true story. So, you know, the Bible is human history, redemptive history, you know, literature is cultural history, um, personal history, all these different sort of things. So I can, I can see why there's that draw. Um, and so, yeah, I think your comment, Jessica, that there's room for, nuance or finesse or sort of like parsing out, I think is really important because there could be just a, a conflation that I think in the end is, is not as, not as helpful. Yeah. Yeah. If we just start, start with the Vanessa Zoltan piece, um, Austin, you, did you listen to that? 
I no, I, I did not. I didn't get a chance well, to. One of the things <laughs> he is an atheist humanist chaplain, and one of the things that she argues is that any book can be sacred because we're the ones that endow it with its sacred property. So if you call Jane Eyre for her, that has become her Bible. And she prays the Lectio Divina using passages of Jane Eyre. And uh, when a friend suggested to her that that would not be very popular, she chose Harry Potter to do her podcast on. So she actually prays Harry Potter for her podcast, which I didn't listen to her podcast. Um, but I just listened to this interview in which she was really arguing how this this non-sacred book can actually be sacred. So any book we, we can give sacred properties to. So just curious of your take on that. Well, I've, I've certainly heard that take before. And I think that it begins with one kind of taking a position on a pretty fundamental philosophical or theological question, which is, do we as the human agent impose meaning on mm -hmm. the world? Or is there such a thing as meaning or something transcendent outside of that we in kind of a critical realist way are uh, trying to interpret and to the best of our faculties be able to uh, apprehend and, and, and understand to ever greater levels. Um, and so she's coming, it sounds like, from a position of that we are the ones as human agents that create any sort of meaning in the world. Mm -hmm. So she and I are coming from two fundamentally different places on this. And that's assuming that I'm hearing that right, because, again, I didn't listen to the podcast and I hate it when I listen to people <laughs> wax on or do a gloss on something they haven't read or, 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 or listened to. So definitely throw that caveat and disclaimer out. But from from just that and from other folks who have heard make this similar argument, that's a pretty important place to begin the conversation, I think, is that I have different theological commitments and convictions mm -hmm. that guide the way that I then come to this. Now, I think that folks who become enamored with or just drawn to the idea of reading any kind of literature as potentially sacred come at that from at least one of two places. The first, I think, uh, is one that that I can very well appreciate because I flirted with it and and um, and can resonate with it, which is that if one grows up in a really hyper religious context where the transcendent is everything um, and where one's understanding of the Bible and um, the, the the understanding of divine inspiration for the Bible, is ironically one that's really contained and controlled like it is there's no real mystery there it's just that, that that god provided this text and if one's religious upbringing has any sorts of strains of fundamentalism or anything to it then there's a really life-giving uh invitation and suddenly recognizing that there are these echoes of transcendence and these ways of, mm -hmm. of a lofty experience of humanity and creation outside of the biblical text. Mm -hmm. uh, and so some folks then can jettison any other claims about a uniqueness to the scriptures and and move toward this idea that that all is compressed into the 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 sacred quality that's in anything that's created by humankind. Mm -hmm. That's one way. But then the other, I think, is for folks that have had a complete absence of transcendence, which I think is really, at least in America, we're only really now in a place where somebody can be, you know, 
generally speaking, 25, 35 years into life and have had really little to no exposure uh, to the trappings of formal religion. Um, here are their outliers, but I mean, now we're at a place where it's, it's, it's possible and in, in many places likely that somebody has just not really had any apparatus around trying to think about the transcendent. And so then when suddenly life just feels too small or too cramped for a more materialistic uh, conception of reality or one that just hasn't really tried to take seriously the spiritual, then suddenly experiencing again those echoes of transcendence that are no doubt in good literature can seem to be the fullness of the transcendent that mm -hmm. I personally believe they're hearing just echoes of that, which is even larger and beyond and deeper, mm -hmm. but I can understand why it can sound to someone like not the echo, but the real source. Oh, that sounds, mm -hmm. that's really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Claude, I, I'd love for you to build on this, but you know, Austin talks about how um, he and Vanessa come from a completely different place because she is assuming there is no transcendent. So the transcendent has to come from within, has to come from human artifacts. But then someone like Dante Stewart, who I only know from Twitter and I actually love following on Twitter, I was surprised hearing him on the Bible for Normal People talk about Black literature the way that he did. So I'm just going to read a quote so that way you don't have to gloss if you didn't listen to it. <laughs> um, but here's here's a quote that he said. It's, it's rather long, but I think it's important to read. And maybe you can talk about what he's getting at here or um, where you differ or or collide with him. So he says, I want to do the work of a theologian that takes seriously reading black texts as sacred texts and black life as sacred history. In the Bible, these books, this anthology, this collection of books have people's names and we receive those names as divine revelation to teach us something about life, to teach us something about God, to teach us something about the world we live in, to teach us something about the stories that give us meaning. Nehemiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Hosea. I want to receive black names, the book of Baldwin, the book of Tony, the book of Alice Walker, et cetera. He gives lots of names. What does it mean to read these people's writing as something sacred that can teach us how to be black in this world and how to love God and our neighbor to the best of our being? Mm. That's someone coming from the same, you know, we prize the Bible. We believe in the Bible. Um, and yet he's also talking about other books being sacred. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's good. And that's interesting. Um, yeah, I know, I know Dante a bit personally. Um, and yeah, I admire him and his, um, yeah, his, his gift as a writer. Um, yeah. You know, I think there's, I think, I think that represents a stream of thought that's coming from, um, obviously from within Christianity, but obviously Christianity has different streams. Right. Um, and so I think there's a, um, what I, what I hear in that excerpt is the, um, prioritization of, uh, of experience. So I'm thinking even through the lens of like, um, uh, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, like the things, you know, scripture, um, tradition, reason, and experience, right? These, we use all of these things to help us understand, um, how to be, Christians in the world, right? And these are all really valuable. And sometimes um, we get we get the order out of whack, right? Scripture is 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 the the ultimate authority and the basis, but these other pieces are are important as well. But you know, I think what I hear in Dante's uh, Dante's quote uh, or that excerpt is uh, one one particular tradition within Christianity, which is a a um, I hear you know strong echoes of a Black liberation tradition that that itself has many different streams. Mm -hmm. um, but especially, I think of um, work of James Cone, where he engages deeply with scripture, but mm -hmm. it ex is explicit about his project as front-loading 
um, uh, black experience as the the grid through which everything else is engaged, partly because uh, scripture has been read and twisted in such a way as to uh, oppress and deny and degrade uh, black people and uh, oppressed people. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it, you can understand why this sort of interpretive project is undertaken by him and, mm-hmm. and by by many others. So, uh, so in that sense, I, I can I understand sort of the contours of that project and that approach. Um, and but I, I think I I'm in that that kind of Wesleyan quadrilateral, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where I think experience really really is important, and we're we're lying if we don't if we think we don't bring experience to our to our readings of of scripture, right? Um, there is no neutral interpreter, um, and so I think it's important we we take stock of experience in a clear way, but our experience is, is never at the same level um, as mm-hmm. as scripture. It doesn't have that same power. And I think it, for me, it really comes down to the question of what does it mean for something to be a sacred text? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable saying loosely, like, Hey, this novel to me is, is kind of like a sacred text in, in the sense of like, it means a lot to me. It is unveiled m- many things to me, but I also recognize that's not, it's, I don't, I don't, if I say that, if I choose to say that, I don't mean the same thing when I talk about scripture is sacred. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it really comes down to like, what are people really saying when they say a text is sacred? I do expect, um, you know, someone, if they are a, you know, an agnostic or atheistic cha- chaplain, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you, you got to draw on something, right? There's no escape. So you're going to, you're going to draw on, there's some text for you is going to function in this way, right? Yeah. We cannot escape um, movements. You know, we, we, we don't sort of cut out God from, from everything. We, he, we, we can try to dethrone him and make substitutions and all these different sort of things, but something will stand there. So, so I think that, those those are a few of my thoughts there, both in terms of kind of what I hear uh, as the tradition in, in Dante's um, in that excerpt, and and you know I can understand that, um, but but I I see it differently. Yeah, yeah, you know I I dealt with both of these questions when I was writing reading for the love of God. On the one hand, what Zoltan is doing, I was trying to say yes, there there is access in Scripture to this transcendence, kind of the echo that Austin was talking about. Like there are these glimmers that are pointing back to something beyond itself and doesn't end there, right? So that these books can be a process for you, can be a journey towards back to the scriptures. And the ways that I distinguished from non-sacred and sacred text is comes down to authority, mm-hmm. right? And the authority is not just something that we give it because faith is a gift. So we're receiving the gift of faith to give authority to the scriptures themselves. And that gift Kierkegaard talks about is the difference between knowing an apostle and knowing a genius. So what Dante is talking about, these are geniuses, Baldwin, Tony, Walker, those are geniuses, but they don't have the same authority as an apostle. So if, if Alice Walker writes something and tells me to do something, I don't have to do it. And I think that's the distinction is a sacred text. For me, when the apostle Paul says it, it's authoritative. I have to go. I have to do it. I have to follow that because he's an apostle and not a genius that's been provided with this muse mm. by, by the Holy Spirit to give us something good and true and beautiful that picks up the church, that continues interpreting the life of the faith, faithful. Um, and I think that's that's a distinction that I, I found lacking in both Stuart and Zoltan's conversation. And like you said, maybe they weren't front loading it. Maybe, well, at least for Dante, He's front-loading something different than this mm-hmm. idea of authority um, that I would mm-hmm. want to go on. 
yeah no i think i think that that um that distinction from Kierkegaard is really helpful. And I think, yeah, I think that, and in my mind that, that adds a lot to sort of parsing through this, uh, as well as kind of the, yeah, the authority piece that's part of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, like those two things, you know, and then Austin, how you were talking about transcendence, those three pieces, I think really come together to help, um, you know, to help sort of navigate, navigate the distinctions that are needed, especially yeah. as folks who love literature and recognize that, that God works through through these texts through through these literary texts like absolutely um but the question of authority transcendence all these pieces really help us recognize you know what we're saying and what we're not saying yeah and i think this is a good conversation to begin season three with as we try to figure out okay so what is the role of literature in the lives of believers who ultimately think the bible is the book of books but now we're talking about all these other books as resources one of the ways that i think about them is in terms of like friends these are these books become friends in my faith. They become community that help me as I strive towards God, as I journey on this pilgrimage towards the beatitude, toward the beatific vision. And how can then we we look at these works of literature like they're doing that? How do we judge them? And I love that the, the three of us, I think it was, was it Claude's idea? I don't want to give the idea of the wrong person, came up with like the fruits of the spirit as like, how can we it was see one it? of us. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so one of the things that we're going to be doing in season three, and we can all elaborate on this a little bit, is we're going to be looking at the fruits of the spirit. How can we judge these people, these books, by the fruits that they bear in our lives? By investigating with other Christian writers, you know, where do we see joy and love and peace in this literature that helps us understand more about God's peace and God's love and and so forth. Um, Austin, would you mind just reading that scripture that we're we're using as kind of our our cornerstone or our absolutely um, Galatians five twenty two, um, and this is Paul then contrasting what he calls the works of the flesh, which he mm. says are obvious. That's his word, and he says, "But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness." generosity, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And significantly, we've opted to gloss uh, or to, to translate that Greek agathosone uh, is uh, both generosity and goodness because uh, the NRSV goes with generosity, the NIV and some others go with goodness. Uh, that's just one of those words that in English... Uh, those two words have such different connotations, but they draw out such richness. Uh, and that's our um, benediction at my church each week oh, is the wow. fruit of the spirit. And, really? um, and having drawn on a mentor of mine, I've always added, um, I won't say added because it sounds like I'm adding to scripture, but just right. uh, kind of enriched the meaning of the field of that word uh, so that we in English have a better conceptualization of what that is. Um and so yes, it was Paul. Uh, it was it was Claude's idea to do the fruit of the spirit, and I was uh, very excited that he had said that because this is a lodestar scripture for me and, and for my church. Uh, but so yeah, um, that we have, we're we're doing ten this season. Even though if you go check your scriptures, listeners, you're going to see that there are only nine. You're going to ask where are they coming up with this tenth fruit? Uh, <laughs> it's two two words embedded in one Greek word there. So yeah. Yeah, we're not about reading it. the book of Claude and the book of Austin, the book of Jessica. <laughs> when do we do that? Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Do you guys listen to Slugs and Bugs with kids? I have at different points. Okay. okay. Well, the reason I think of it is because I only know the fruits of the spirit by heart because of that song. So listeners should download that song. It's also how I know the Ten Commandments really well now. Oh, man. Because um, it's like the fruits of the spirit are not a tomato. Yes, I do know, oh, that, I do song. know that song. Yeah, that's, that's what right. it was from. Yes. I know I know yeah, Spotify throws that up uh, yeah. in our car quite regularly. Yeah. 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 No, books of the Bible, all sorts of stuff you can get yeah. beat by song. Like really, uh, yeah, the, the power the power of song for memorization is, uh, is is strong and serious, no doubt. Yes, yes. And then it just becomes part of your imagination. So I love that. Well, also this season, we're going to still have a lit pulpit. And yep. we're going to discuss... Da, 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 da. Go ahead, Austin. We are going to discuss Walker Percy's The Movie Goer, a book that Claude and I have been trying to tell Jessica about for years. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We've been telling her that uh-huh. there's this guy yeah. named Walker Percy... <laughs> And that she that really ought to read them. So we've decided to do this simply so that Jessica can finally familiarize herself <laughs> with this great writer. Yeah. And before anybody thinks I had anything to do with that, I did not discuss their Lit Pulpit book. That is completely on them. Choosing it's, that on, it's on them. I've never read it. So this will be, uh, this will be interesting. I read... Uh, Love in the Ruins. Uh, yeah. That was the first, my first Walker Piercy experience last year. Mm-hmm. I think that was probably the best novel that I read last year. Um, so good. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into the movie goer. And so, yeah, folks, follow along with us in the show notes, Facebook group, all of that stuff. Um, it, it's, it, you know, uh, we, we're not afraid of long novels, but this is also not a long novel. So, you know, there's some extra incentive there uh, in a nice, easy pathway. So, uh, stick with us on, on the journey. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a good one. Yeah. yeah, go pick up the book. We're excited about it. I haven't read it in years either, so this is going to be yeah. a lot of fun. Well, and just going off of what we were saying, you know, this relationship between the Bible and literature as we close out talking about the moviegoer, um, Percy is converted to Christianity by the writings of Dostoevsky, and the first mm-hmm. thing he tries to do is write novels to help other people find Jesus. And mm-hmm. so this is his first novel where he's like, all right, I want them to see Jesus uh, in this book. And so it's a really good one if you're trying to understand like, what what is the point of literature, right? Mm-hmm. Why not just read the Bible? Well, he grew up in the Bible Belt. He read the Bible his whole life and it did nothing for him. And that's mm-hmm. on him. I mean, it's the same with Augustine. The Bible did nothing for Augustine until, right? Until it did. yeah. Until it did. And that's the same with Percy. And so it was other literature, like other saints kind of leading him back to back to the faith. Well, I think that's a great way to kind of circle and tie up this whole conversation because that's really what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and C.S. Lewis had that same experience. You know, it was Tolkien's uh, recommendation to him and encouragement to read the New Testament with the same kind of wonder that he read and appreciated great myth. Um, you know, with the conversation we were having earlier about um, black literature is sacred, I think there's no place better to go to, to think about this than Claude's book, you know, because it's the difference between making a claim that let's read black literature or any literature as one-to-one sacred literature mm-hmm. versus let's read these incredibly rich books, mine them for theological significance that then actually we're able to go back to the source and the scriptures and have it have even deeper clarity and richness and significance to us. Um, so great literature, great stories, 
they tell us things. They, they, they tell the truth slant, you know, and, and in so doing, uh, the best literature is able to help us make further sense of kind of the bedrock source. Yeah. And to me, the question is just about with the kind of theological claims that we have, not, not conflating all literature with the source, but then also not doing what Christianity has done for so long and what all three of us in our own ways are trying to work against, which is to then not say, well, just because this is on a different kind of footing uh, as sacred scripture does not mean that it does not have deep riches for helping form us as people of faith and helping better understand and appreciate uh, truly sacred scripture. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, well, as we move into season three, there's a lot of conversations to look for, and we're going to trust these writers that we're talking to, as well as the books that we're reading together, that they're going to bear fruit. And so we're going to be looking closely at those fruits of the Spirit. Um, we can at least give you a little bit of preview. I, I talked to Philip Yancey about John Donne, his devotions, uh, looking at patience there. Um, I'm going to be talking to Grace Hammond about Jillian of Norwich. Um, you guys have some interviews lined up too. Yep, we've got Justin uh, Whitmill early. Uh, is planning to come on. Uh, we'll see what we want to discuss. Um, but he's, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, when you're when you're a star, you can uh, dictate the terms. So, uh, so, so we got to lock down a couple of details. But Justin's excited to come on, so I'm gonna hold him to it. And uh, yeah, some more su surprise conversations that'll be rich ones as well. Yeah. I'll be talking about Jaber Crow with Wynn Collier. Uh, mm. I'll be talking about awesome. Gilead with my good friend Tommy Brown, who Very has cool. just had a book released uh, this week. Uh, Fantastic. Which is, you know, we're recording this September the 8th, but a book with Nav Press called The Ache for Meaning, which is a wonderful book that I recommend folks check out. He and I will be talking about Gilead and then uh, waiting to confirm uh, one other that I don't want to uh, say anything about until that is fully confirmed, but yeah. I'm excited about all of it. Yeah, a lot to look forward to. Well, hopefully you are subscribing, you are sharing the podcast when you enjoy it, sharing the the riches that hopefully come from it by the Spirit's grace. And so we we invite you to follow along with us and we look forward to, to talking to you more over the next few months. Thanks, guys. Welcome to the Scandal of Reading podcast. I absolutely love the time that I get to spend in conversation with friends and hopefully I'm reaching out to friends through this podcast and when we get to discuss literature. Today, we're doing something that is just gonna be so filled with joy and I am ecstatic about it. We are going to discuss Joy 100 Poems, edited by Christian Wyman himself, one of, I think, the greatest living poets out there. And I'm, I chose as my discussion partner, my friend, Shamaya Gonzalez, who is currently writing a book on Joy. So I thought she was a perfect conversation partner. So Shamaya, would you introduce yourself to listeners? I'm Shamaya Gonzalez. Um, I'm an essayist and a storyteller. And I'm working on a book called Undaunted Joy, and it's just a collection of essays on joy. Um, I started it as a substack to see, is this something I could sustain thinking about joy? And I could. I could write about joy every week. And it just, I kept finding it in other places and learning more and more about it. It's um, It's more surprising and not as simple 
as you would think. And remember that old adage, uh, don't pray for for patience or God will really teach you it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you pray to learn joy, um, Satan will try to take it away from you. Mm. And so it's been kind of an interesting (laughs) year with a lot of weird things that have come out and learning how joy is about surrender and surrendering to God um, through it all. So, so yeah. That's a lovely introduction to the topic. So um, joy itself, it's funny. Like I definitely want to define our terms, but it's funny to be working on a book on joy. I can imagine people's responses. Uh, Chris Wyman in the opening writes this amazing introduction that the poet Aaron Brown, even on Twitter, he commented like that alone is worth the price of the book. Yes, I agree. I think think that's very true. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's very true. And, and Wyman actually starts saying, you know, when I was working on my book on joy, I would get all these varied responses. I'd have people like the academics, like, well, what is joy? You know, these kind of like <laughs> pretentious academic conversations about the definition and, and its meaning. And, and then you'd have other people, you know, talk about the challenge of joy or like, can you really define it? Is it a real thing? Like, is it a virtue? Is it a practice? Is it a feeling? What exactly is it? And he said everybody was just all across the map in their responses. I'm curious now that you've been telling people you're working on this book, Undaunted Joy. Have you had that same kind of response from others about what joy is? Yes, I I don't even try to define it um, <laughs> because my my book is a collection of stories. So I'm trying to to give people a lens to look through mm. and um, to see different aspects of it. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, just in the introduction, it's it's hard to define. And um, there's that one poet, the um, the Hebrew poet who wrote that joy is blurry, the blurriness of mm, joy, yeah. and yeah. Uh, that pain you can describe so precisely, but but joy is hard to mm-hmm. to capture. And um, and it's more than happiness. I I like the definition later too. Um, from C.S. Lewis, that uh, happiness is when you when you get what you want, <laughs> mm. and joy. Um, there's much more of a sense of surrender that you can find to find this um, this goodness in things that other people might not find. Um, yeah. And and what I when I talk about it <laughs> when I talk about it, it's mostly in the um, in the locker room in the morning at the gym while I'm getting ready. (laughs) And um, I think that joy is, is like in C.S. Lewis surprised by joy. When he looks back at his life, it it's where God was, you know, where God Mm -hmm. was calling to him and he found God's, you know, in hindsight, he sees where God was present in, in his imagination playing with things and, and in his love of, um, academia and education and then mm-hmm. um and then within relationships and I think that that that's for me that's the definition of joy is is finding God's presence within mm-hmm. our life both the mundane things like breakfast mm-hmm. and, and magnificent things like like your baby <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, who might who might make an appearance at any moment? What could be more joyful than that? My goodness. <laughs> well, and Lewis is in the introduction that Wyman talks about because he says, you know, Lewis and Surprised by Joy found joy first in poetry. 
there's that great opening of his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, where he talks about um, Balder is dead and the feeling he got. I mean, it's a sad poem, but the feeling pointed to something beyond this life, some source of joy that seemed not in the things of right here, but but also beyond it somehow. And that poetry was what allowed him to, to find that or long for that. And Wyman even quotes um, Wordsworth, right? And saying like, to see through to things is how you find joy. And I think poets poets can do that probably better than anybody, like giving us the language to, to seek this transcendent. So I, I'm glad that we're talking about poems and that there's a hundred of them that kind of get us to show it, like look at the mundane and see through to the magnificent, the way you talk yeah. about it. Um, would you, do you want to pick a few poems and maybe we can just yes. have you read them aloud and we'll just talk about like, where is the joy? Like, why is this in the joy collection? And I wanted to say something about what you just said though, about, um, oh, Lewis, Lewis and Woodsworth and both of those examples, the Lewis and Woodsworth have, um, a, a, a tinge of sadness to them. And, um, I think that that's, that's what I've discovered too, that you have to understand pain. You have to have experienced pain and suffering to have that, that difference between suffering and joy. You know, um, people often say, oh, well, don't, are you going to be like a Pollyanna? You know, everything's great. And I'm just like, well, you remember that girl lost her family. <laughs> yeah. Like she wasn't just looking like oblivious to life. Like she chose to live in goodness and mm-hmm. and beauty and in God's presence, um, mm-hmm. even though she had lost everything. You know? Yeah, so, she even gets paralyzed at the end. Yes. <laughs> so I'm like this whole <laughs> Pollyanna complex, and I'm like. I don't understand how that's a bad thing. Yeah. Rejoice yeah. in all things is exactly Pollyanna. That's really good. Actually. That's a good point. Well, look at, look at my copy. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of the dog ears, which people complain about when it comes to how you treat books. Um, and I have some that are just some of my favorites. I mean, this whole collection is just gorgeous and it's all over the map for those who don't have yes. it from Jewish writers and Muslim writers and atheist writers and, I mean, he, Wyman does a great job about just all of us have the capacity for joy, right? There's something, there's something that God has enabled each of us to seek after joy. And he does that well in in these poems. Yeah. So where would you like to go? (laughs) Um, Okay. My favorite, I want to start with my favorite, just in case we don't get to others. Um, Okay. Which is Joy by Liesl. Mueller, and that's on page 40. Um, Am I to read it or you? Well, you know, if we want to go back and forth, I can read this one and then you can talk about why, and then maybe I'll pick one. Okay, good. Because this one, I'm, it's hard for me to read it. That's why I asked. Okay. Because I think my voice will crack. I might cry. I might cry if I read it. So, okay. which my right. son was making fun of me the other day when I was, he's like, mom, you always cry at the poems. <laughs> well, this one is titled Joy. So it's more explicitly titled, definitely pointing there um, by Liesl Mueller. Don't cry. It's only music. Someone's voice is saying, no one you love is dying. It's only music. And it was only spring 
the world's unreasoning body run amok like a saint's with glory that overwhelmed a young girl into unreasoning sadness. Crazy, she told herself. I should be dancing with happiness. But it happened again. It happens when we make bottomless love. There follows a bottomless sadness, which is not despair, but its nameless opposite. It has nothing to do with the passing of time. It's not about loss. It's about two seemingly parallel lines suddenly coming together inside us in some place that is still wilderness. Joy, joy, the sopranos sing, reaching for the shimmering notes while our eyes fill with tears. That's lovely. Yeah, and Wyman titles his intro, Still Wilderness, from this poem. Yeah. So why, why do you love this poem? What does it teach you about joy? Well, that what we spoke of earlier, it's difficult to define. Mm -hmm. And um, she, she calls that out. It's nameless opposite. You know, it's, it's such, so dif difficult to define. And then also just that connection between joy and despair, you know, and um, that you have to know one to know the other. So where she writes, it's, <laughs> it, it's these lines that kill me. So it's, it's about two seemingly parallel lines suddenly coming together inside of us mm -hmm. in some place that is still wilderness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also yeah, I love you. that it's, a, oh, I'm sorry, love. No, go ahead. <laughs> I love that, um, that it's about music because sometimes like, why does that, why does that piece just make me feel something? Look, oh, look at those cheeks. <laughs> People on the podcast can't can't see her. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the babies sorry. arrived. You're fine. The babies arrived. <laughs> and she's she's wonderful and she's got wonderful cheeks. Oh my goodness. Um but there's something about music um that that brings that sense of joy into our lives and we 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 don't even know why why do we love this this piece and it could be one with words and it could be a, a classical piece that just stirs mm -hmm. your soul oh, and you might not even know what you know maybe it's opera and you don't even know what they're they're singing about because it's in a different language yeah. it reminds me of um the Shawshank Redemption right where it's the music yeah Yes, I was thinking of that specifically. <laughs> <laughs> because it just, it it does, it tells your soul that there is something else, that you were made for some other place and some other time. And and it gives you that longing that Lewis was talking about, right? Sinsucht, um, is that what he uses? He uses that German phrase, sinsucht, like joy, the the longing. And, and that's, you were talking about pain. I was trying to think about, I, I'm an academic, so I was trying to like not be academic-y. But, um, <laughs> but with, with pain, well, I mean, at the end of all time, we're going to know joy without the pain. Yes. Yes. Right. Amen. But the reason the pain is part of it here is because we're longing for something that we can't fully access yet. So the pain is actually an indication of the joy. The pain is the, the, the hole that is made for something bigger that she points to. Right, it's something that comes together inside us in some place. Right, nameless, bottomless, 
And she even phrases, you know, run amok like a saint's. And you think of David just dancing before the ark. It, you know, it's pointing to something that's mythical and vast and eternal. Yes. Amen. So. <laughs> well, I, Please I love Please get that academic. One. I love that. <laughs> well, I'm always, um, by academic, I probably just mean I'm a two-year-old who always has to say, why, 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 why? <laughs> I love time. it. That curiosity <laughs> that stays with you. Some people put it away and you, you kept it with you. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to, I don't know how to turn it off. I'm sure it drives some people crazy, but um, going with the dancing with joy, I wasn't planning on this one, be, but because it did make me think like the saints run amok. Um, there is that poem by Berryman in here, right? The dancing of King David. Where is that one? Oh, 138. I would love that. And Berryman it's not a really happy writer, right? Um, <laughs> but love this poem. So maybe we should read the dances with joy poems. One thirty-eight, King David dances. Do you mind? No, not at all. I can read it. Okay. King David dances. Aware to the dry throat of the wide hell in the world. Oh, trampling empires and mine one of them and mine one gross desire against his sight slaughter devising there some good behind ambiguous ahead revolted sons a pierced son bound to bear mid hypocrites amongst idlers mocked in abysm by one shallow wife with the ponder both of priesthood and of state heavy upon me. Yea, all the black mm -hmm. same, I dance my blue head off. <laughs> so this is in a collection on joy. What are we, what are we to make of this? This is not how I would have written King David dances. I love that line, one shallow wife. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. The people who don't understand what it is you're doing. Like you said about joy, um, don't be Pollyanna. Yeah. In some ways, this is a poem written to refute the shallow wives. And that sense of surrender again, King David willing to to look ridiculous mm -hmm. as the head of state, <laughs> as king. Yeah. Um, and just the willingness to look ridiculous in front of God and let him take hold of your life. And it's you know, for Berryman to, <laughs> to be the one to yes. write this. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. I think Berryman was also searching for, you know, that had that sin-soaked feeling, had those notions of joy um, that he wasn't able to attend to. I'm not a Berryman biographer, but I've, I've read some of that, um, of course, when he loses his life. Um, but thinking about Wyman's introduction, Wyman talks about joy is in the present. Yes. The very present sense. Yes. And here we have the some good behind ambiguous ahead it's very much like in the present even the oh the the sense of like 
where it's like, oh, trampling empires and mine, one of them and mine, one gross desire. Like we're right there in the middle of things yeah. with this poem. And it's all one thought, one, <laughs> one yeah, idea no, right there. There's no punctuation until the end. Exclamation point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the, it's the present awareness that it calls you to. It calls you to, to let go of, and everything in the poem is so heavy and revolting, piercing, bounding, bearing. I mean, all of the language, the slaughter, the gross desire, the wide howl, the dry throat. I mean, all of it is describing things that are not joyful. And yet all of those things are in the contrast to this one moment where he's dancing his blue head off, right? Which looks like the Chagall painting. In your the blue head. head. Ah. Yeah. That's what I think of. <laughs> like in the midst of all the black same, in the midst of all of this, like rejoicing in the suffering, rejoicing in all things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that's where the joy versus happiness that you were discussing comes to play. Like these poets are able to get in touch with the joy. It's not about the happiness. I mean, David's not going to get to build a home for this ark and um, he is going to lose a lot of things over the course of his life. But in this exact moment, it's the joy despite all the happenstance of yeah. his life. Well, we often think just in a practical way, you always, you always hear people say, Oh, I'll be happy when this, Yeah. you know, I'll be happy when um, I graduate. I'll be happy when I get married and mm -hmm. I'll be happy when mm -hmm. I have a child. And, um, you know, it's about being happy now being joyful mm. that's the difference joyful now mm -hmm. in in the way my eggs looked at breakfast <laughs> yeah you know, um someone uh in the introduction to my book I write about a time that um that I was really struggling with uh depression and um <laughs> and we had somebody over for dinner and I got overly excited about the new trash bags that we had just <laughs> purchased because they were the stretchy kind. And, um, and I, and my husband had somebody over for dinner from his firm, somebody fancy. And here I was like talking about the stretchy trash bags <laughs> as in the trash can. And, um, and I realized how ridiculous I looked like I looked as if I was in a commercial and mm -hmm. the man, without skipping a beat, said to me, you know, you have to get excited about the little things, Shamaya. The big things don't happen that often. And when they do, they usually aren't good. Mm. And it just stayed in my head. You know, yeah. you have to get excited about trash bags and eggs. and Because all of the big stuff in life that happens aren't aren't usually great. Sometimes they're devastating, you know, but, yeah. but if you have that joy, it sustains you. Yeah. Well, and even again, I'm going back to the introduction. See, it is really the price it's of the whole beautiful, book. Beautiful. <laughs> well, cause Wyman does talk about Wordsworth seeing through to things, but also just seeing things. And what you're talking about is just the seeing of the things and poetry can help do that. It helps you see things and attend to things, right? Like attending to the music, attending to 
the the trash bags, like attending to the small things that are coming yes. and not just the big things and, and not in a superficial way, in a way that actually matters, right? It's not just effusive. I'm an effusive person, but that's not what joy is about. It's not about being necessarily just... Precious. not about just being a, I know, <laughs> being effusive. It's about being attentive. Yeah. What's more joyful than a baby? <laughs> I don't know. So I think if we want to pay more attention and we want to look at poems that help us do this, that, that our joy can be drawn out from attending to the small things. Maybe we should read Donald Hall's Summer Kitchen. Do you want to read that one? Yes, I love that one. Summer Kitchen. In June's high light, she stood at the sink with a glass of wine and listened for the bobo link and crushed garlic in late sunshine. I watched her cooking from my chair. She pressed her lips together, reached for the kitchenware, and tasted sauce from her fingertips. It's ready now. Come on, she said. You light the candle. We ate and talked and went to bed and slept. It was a miracle. That's so gorgeous. That's so gorgeous. And not not to degrade miracles, but really just being able to see the miracle in the ordinary, like you said, the mundane, yeah. seeing the magnificent, your, your phrases are sticking with me, Shamaya. you know, seeing the magnificent in the mundane. Yeah, it's just making dinner. And it's a miracle, you know, that they could be there yeah. together. And that, that it's just a beautiful moment, you know? Mm -hmm. um, what does this encapsulate? It's just a, a couple of minutes of time, really, that, that wrapping up of, of dinner when you're just getting everything ready mm -hmm. and just how lovely it is to be with the one that you love, to have yeah. beautiful music, light the candle, you know, <laughs> making it special for each other. Yeah. And that, that's a miracle. Yeah. Well, especially if you think of all the times i mean i do i do a lot of totalitarian literature you think of all the times people have had to find joy in dark places yes and you talk about that a lot and the joy is contrasted with the suffering and the pain but then this poem is saying like and then there's the times where it's not it's not contrasted with the pain and we are going to miss the joy-filled moments in our life if we can't attend to them when they're there yes right if it always takes us being in pain to experience joy <laughs> You know, like, what right. are we missing? Yes. That we're missing. And this is this is the thing about poetry, too. So many people tell me that they, they don't understand poetry. Oh, yes. I'm like, it's not about understanding. It's about seeing, naming. I mean, it's the very first task that, like, Adam's given in the garden with the animals. Like, what is this? What is this? Like, look and see. See the good things that are there. See the good things that I made. Like, that's what a poet does. And that's what poetry readers do, right? Like we get to have, we get to experience that miracle, you know, seeing through the eyes of Donald Trump. someone else's you know. eyes. Yes. We need yeah. to show us the way because we get so jaded and, and to have someone else's lens on. It's 
say, yeah. oh, look, look at this precious moment. You know, we've all made made dinner before, <laughs> it, it does, <laughs> and, but but we don't see it as beautifully as Donald Hall does. And he lets us yeah. see that, you know, tonight when I make dinner, I'll think of this. <laughs> that's that's the point. Yes. Yes, that's the point. I feel like that's where the joy is, is being able to do that, right? Um, that's how you can rejoice in all things, is, is to be able to attend to everything, the good and the bad and the ugly and the just the life that's there. I wish rejoice in all things. Rejoice in all things. I love, he, he was on house arrest when St. Paul said that. <laughs> uh, he, he didn't know what was going to happen to him. He knew he was probably going to be killed. And he said, rejoice always. And again, I say, in case you didn't hear me before. Yes. Rejoice. Yes, exactly. Well, and I think literature has the ability to really keep us in that place as much as the word of God does, you repeating those lines, right? The word of God is true. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And then there's resources like Wyman's book of poems that help us to know exactly what that joy looks like and to be able to see it and experience it and gives us those inner resources to keep rejoicing. And hopefully your book is going to do the same, right? Undaunted I hope joy. So. I <laughs> A hope discovery so. into what joy is and, and how to experience it, especially yeah. in these days, which people regularly say are are dark or mental health crises or distraction or despair, right? Where, where can we find the joy? Well, my book's yeah. going to talk about joy of naps, joy of my, <laughs> my kids and their morphing bodies as they turn from, from young boys to men, and then also joy in dark places. So it's going to kind of hit, um, hit everything. So well, we look forward it. to that. Yeah, we look forward to that. Um, for right now, people can get Chris Wyman's 100 Poems on Joy and look forward to Shamaya's book. Thank you, Shamaya, for being with me this morning. Thank you.